Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 483, air date November 26, 
Uh, it was an identification system of your body type, and based on that body identification and disturbances, particular herbs and foods or diet were prescribed for you. And I guess one of the important takeaways is that this was a personalized system of medicine. One size never fit all. Uh, it was identifying your homeostasis and understanding what was right or degree. But anyway, I grew up around this. I, I saw my grandmother with no degrees, tattoos all over her arm, chewing tobacco, very different than your typical MD with a lab coat. I saw her empirically healed because I was very interested in medicine. My family came to the United States in 1970. Uh, given my background, I don't know if you know, India has a caste system. You know, we were considered untouchables in India's caste system, so I also had very motivated to succeed. Okay, so by the time I was 14, I had finished up calculus, and this is an interesting article. Um, so my high school had no other courses to offer me. Uh, because this is an NSF center, the NSF in 1978 had funded a professor at NYU to bring in high school students to NYU to learn uh, computer programming. This was in 1978 when a computer would fill up a room like this. So, it, uh, and that professor had a vision to educate high school students. I was one of those fortunate high school students. So this was a little paper clipping my mom picked up. And I, I used to take the train from Newark all the way to New York. Most parents are afraid to let their kids walk out these days. This was when I was 14. Um, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Finished up this course at NYU. The net of it was I graduated the top of the class and I had very little courses left in high school. So I got very fortunate. I started working as a full-time research fellow at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. Okay, very one of the poorest cities in the United States, and nothing is supposed to come out of Newark, okay? Um, but initially what I did was I applied computing to a very interesting problem to understand why babies were dying in their sleep called SID, sudden infant death syndrome. So this was you know, one of the early integrations of computing where you had large longitudinal data, and we're trying to uh, correlate that data with sleep patterns when the baby would stop breathing. It's called an apnea. So, you know, you know, this was what you would call early, well, frankly, a lot of these machine learning techniques are still around today. They've just been revamped. This was Walsh and Hart Transforms trying to essentially predict the onset. But while I was there, because of my recently good programming skills, I also got introduced how to build large-scale systems. Um, and some of you, if you're over the age of 40, will remember in many organizations, there was a person called the secretary. She would write this thing called a memo. She had the inbox, outbox, folders, the trash can. These were literal physical things. And she would write this thing called a memo, which actually looked a lot like this memorandum to, from, subject. Um, and it had a thing called a carbon copy. Carbon paper was literally carbon paper. You would put paper, and they would get put into these envelopes, and you would send them around these pneumatic tubes. And this was the Ethernet before the Ethernet, okay? Yeah. I don't know if you got anyone seen this? Okay. So I was asked to convert that entire system, albeit in those old computers you do, simple text messaging into the electronic version, the entire interoffice mail system. It was a system. I called, and by the way, just to give you a background, even the military, this was in a 77th report, thought to build this kind of system was impossible. The guys in lab posts thought that secretaries, women, were not qualified to go from the typewriter to the keyboard. So they thought this was an impossible problem. But I didn't because as a 14-year-old, I didn't have any of those hang-ups. The secretaries were actually my customers. And uh, I called that system email. Five-letter term, not so obvious. The only reason I called the email was because the operating system only allowed five characters. It was not an obvious term. And that system captured every feature you see in email system today. Um, this was back, as uh, Wojtek mentioned, uh, in those days, you had what was called the Westinghouse Science, uh, was considered the baby nobles. I won one of those. And um, that's really my mentor. He was, people were 30 to 50 years older than me, but the cool thing was, in America, I was given this cool opportunity. That was done before I came to MIT, okay? Uh, when I came to MIT on the front page, they highlighted a bunch of students, three of them, and it was there. So the point is, uh, the email system we use today was not created by the military, it was done by a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey. And I say that not to just, because credit is important, but the fact is innovation can occur anywhere, anytime, anybody, not just Silicon Valley, et cetera. This is an important narrative that we need to change in this country. But uh, in those days, you couldn't copyright software. No one even knew what software was. They thought it was uh, paper. They thought it was a novel. It was only 1980 that the Copyright Act of, the Computer Act of 1980 allowed you to use copyright 
to protect software. And what that meant was it wasn't simply putting a C with a logo on it, as some people have erroneously said, you had to send in your code, you had to go back and forth, and I, I didn't have parents like Bill Gates' parents in it, and eventually the copyright uh, was issued, recognizing me as the inventor of email. But the key thing that I learned from this was how to build large-scale systems. Because email wasn't a system. It's not the simple exchange of text messages. And by the way, all this went into the Smithsonian about six years ago, and it created a quite interesting dialogue you can read about on the internet, because people confuse text messaging with the system. Um, so that background really set me up for my interest in biology, and as a kid, being able to build large systems. When I came to MIT, I was very interested in medicine. Um, however, I had this sort of distaste also because I found out that uh, the Western approach to medicine was to treat the body as parts, okay? So you don't see the body as a whole, but you see it as parts. At the healthcare level, if you go to your doctor and you have a headache, um, the healthcare system is incented to triage you to multiple people. You may go see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, an endocrinologist, you know, uh, a, a, a car, all different people. Um, so you're not seeing the body as a whole, and that troubled me. Um, and furthermore, as you look at this, what you find is that the entire development of a pharmaceutical, by the way, a pharmaceutical drug is a single compound. We're not talking about an herb. We're not talking about cannabis, which has many, many compounds in it. It's typically a single synthetic compound. That process is a very arduous process. It takes about 13 years from the time, let's say, one of you discovers something in a lab. You do in vitro, in vivo testing. These three boxes are called preclinical. And this takes around one to five million dollars. And around this point right here, uh, by the way, you may patent this. Let's say you, you discover this drug today, you patent it today. And by the way, patent life is anyone know how many years? 20 years. 20 years. So this already, you be, let's say this takes six years, you only have 14 years left. You then have to file with the FDA for an allowance that they will let you test on humans. All right? If you get that allowance and you go to phase one, phase two, phase three, this may take another nine years. So you're looking at around a 13 to 15 year cycle, which means you only have five years to recoup your costs. So if your drug is only for 100,000 people, what does that mean? You, crank, you have to crank up that price just to get back your costs. Forget all the middlemen involved. More importantly, um, only 20% of the drugs coming out of this uh, phase one, in fact, make it here. So many of the failures in phase one were because of the design process that took place here. Moreover, the stuff that's being produced here is not personalized, it's not precise, which means it's one size fits all. The drugs are not designed for you, the individual. They treat you in a depersonalized way. Um, so for many, how many engineers in here? Okay, so from an engineering perspective, it's the way we used to build airplanes. You had a design, you flew the pilot in, he failed, you said, gee whiz, he failed, he succeeded. Then you, after the fact, sort of explain why Bernoulli's principle worked for that case. And frankly, that's how drug development works. You know, it's it's a, frankly a very medieval science. It, it, you know, people shoot a bunch of stuff out there, stuff falls out of the sky, and then you hope it works. The results are quite, and the results are not that great. In fact, they're awful. So what you're seeing here, this is from 2006 when I um, uh, got out of my, when I was doing my PhD, I used to present this graph. This is year over year spending in R&D. So pharma companies put 30% increases in their R&D spending. And then what are you seeing here? They're finding less and less new drugs. Right? Doesn't seem to work, does it? And this graph hasn't changed. Same thing here. More and more R&D increases. These are new medicines being allowed by the FDA. And in fact, this curve says it dramatically, looks at how basically the number of drugs approved per billions of dollars. So you can see this is going down. So the return on investment is horrible. Mm. And pharma is also recognizing this. And if they aren't, they just keep doing this. And they, they, you know, they, they do uh, the spin to get their stocks to go up. But more uh, awful is when you look at a graph like this, here you see that 7.7% of Americans are uh, over 20 years of old are severely obese. Uh, here, 32.1% of Americans over 20 year olds are obese. So if you add that up, that's nearly 39% of Americans. Okay? So this is what's going on. In fact, on the plane over here, I sat next to a woman at Eli Lilly who's here, and she says, you know, I create the type 1 diabetes drug. I market it. I go, how do you feel about that? She goes, look, it's, it's awful because people should be focused on food and what we put into our bodies, food and exercise. 
Because she goes, the level of obesity has gotten so bad, she sees this as the only intervention. But it's, it, and she herself recognizes it, recognizes that it's really not the solution, but you're really uh, looking at a symptom. Um, this is another where we're actually headed. Okay, this is among youth. We're at 13.9% in 1999, and, and by around now we're up to 18%. We're going to go to 40% with adults. Okay, so what do you guys think? Do you think the healthcare system's working? This is what, you know, just look at it. This is the actual data. All these people um, are telling us things are great, but this is what, what's actually going on. And it gets even worse when you actually look at where healthcare costs are going, 20% of our GDP is going to go towards healthcare. Okay? So this is where we're at. And forget about the middlemen and the corruption that takes place from a science and technology standpoint. Uh, we have, in, in many ways, it's a big problem, but it's also a big opportunity. And I'm convinced the solutions are not going to come from biologists, they're going to come from engineers. Because engineers look at the ankle bones connected to the foot bone, biologists don't. In fact, you win a Nobel Prize for just discovering the ankle bone. So why is this taking place? What's the cause here? Okay, I don't know if you know the story uh, about Buddha who calls in the king. It tells the story about the king who brings in the six blind men. They're all told to touch the elephant, and each has a blinded view of reality. Um, the, the, the elephant here could be cancer. The elephant here could be Alzheimer's. The elephant here could be the immune system. The, these are biologists who touch pieces of it. And, and what ends up happening is if they were ever to work together, you'd probably end up with something like this. Because you know the story, the guy who touches the tusk thinks he's touching a spear. The guy who runs into the, the foot thinks he's, he's ran into a, uh, uh, an oak tree, etc. And you'd end up with this. And the reason this occurs is because biology is very specialized. You win a Nobel Prize for finding out two proteins interact. There's not an incentive in, the, in those academic settings to collaborate because you want to keep your data, you, you win those awards and those grants by keeping your data to yourself. There's no integration of data by and large, it's only starting this non-holistic approach. So this is a reality, this is sort of a root cause analysis of this situation. But I would argue there's some bigger questions that we should also consider. And the bigger questions are, are we doing research, discovery, and innovation correct? That's what I wanted to share with you, the email story. Because the email story is not the fact that I invented email. But why was there such an unfortunate backlash when these story when the facts came out? It was obvious, you know, where email came from. I would argue it was because it did not come from the typical large-scale academic establishment. But more importantly, if you peel away research, discovery, and innovation, by and large, it's very exclusive, right? It's a small set of people who determine a small set of journal editors who are looking at the direction of science. It's very opaque how those decisions are made. It's reductionist by and large. Just like the elephant, uh, you look at the parts, uh, it's highly centralized. We don't really do decentralized research per se. Um, it's censored. You know, I don't know if you know, Einstein did not publish one paper peer-reviewed. When he submitted his last paper, uh, they wanted him to peer-review. He goes, how can peers review new innovative work? Yet if you look at the NIH grant process that takes place today, it's, uh, you actually have to have already done stuff in specific once you even get the grant. Okay. So it's, 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 it's unfortunate where things are, and it's highly depersonalized. The entire way we do uh, biological research is for a statistical norm. It's not about looking at uh, you know, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And I would argue, as we go through this, in your back of your mind, if you can think about, perhaps we need to implement a new paradigm. Inclusive, right? Inclusive meaning interdepartmental. Engineers should be doing biology. You, know, bio, you, know, you, you, you build a much more interdisciplinary world. Transparency in research, opening up the way that we do science, um, systems-based approaches, decentralized, and freedom. There's a whole movement towards open access journals, uh, you know, open science, and I would say personalized. Okay? So this is very different. If you just compare this, these are two very different principles on how you create a different kind of science and discovery mechanism. So let's talk about systems biology in that context. So in 2003, I, I've been, I went in and out of MIT, did a bunch of degrees, four degrees, started many companies. Uh, while I was in the middle of running my last company, which analyzed email for large corporations, we routed, made a lot of money doing that. I, ran, I was back at MIT, walking through uh, to, to visit someone, and bumped into my old advisor, and he said, Shiva, you should come back and finish your PhD. I had left in the middle of my last one to go start a company. And what was, the reason he said this was he said there's a huge important development taking place 
where biology was going into a revolution. And what was happening was, around 1990, we started the Genome Project. At this point, we knew a worm had around 20,000 genes. Anyone know that? A, a small worm. And uh, when we went into the Genome Project, um, biologists assumed that we must have at least 100,000 genes, maybe even a half a million, maybe even a million genes. Why? Because biologists, and I think people in information theory would not have said that, biologists felt that complexity was a direct relationship to the number of parts, okay? So more parts, more complexity. Worm had 20,000 genes, we must have at least 100,000 million genes. So this was conservatively one of the estimates, but watch what happens year over year, the Genome Project's hunting for these 100,000 genes, and what ends up happening by 2003 is we only find out we have about 20,000 genes. We have the same number of genes as a worm, okay? So this flipped biology on its head, because what it meant was, from a structural perspective, it's not the number of parts, but the parts give rise to, right? Uh, proteins, uh, genes give rise to proteins, proteins give rise to molecular pathways, those molecular pathways feed back on themselves, it's not a straight, open system, right? It's a, it's a much more complex, intelligent system. Um, one of my scientific advisory members, um, at that time in 2003, Nature had written this article which said, if you want to understand the whole physio, this is pretty cool because now we're going back to what my grandmother did, right? If you want to understand the whole body, maybe we need to, it's really a multi-scale problem. We're looking at uh, things that go across multiple scales, genes, proteins, cell types, right, organs, and we're going also across multiple temporal scales, from genes all the way up. So this said we need to really interconnect knowledge across multiple different spatial and temporal scales. And by the way, they are domain scales too. It's not, this problem is harder than a fluid mechanics problem, right, where you're dealing with gas dynamics, uh, because you have domain specificity. Someone may spend their entire life just studying the mitochondria, someone else on membrane proteins. So. So, so at that time, second time around, the NSF was involved, uh, you know, back when I told you about the NYU situation, I started, um, got involved in that course, the NSF was very instrumental in supporting that. But the NSF put, at this time, 2003, put forward a grand challenge, which was could you mathematically model the whole human cell? Okay? So if you think about the cell as a big interconnection of molecular mechanisms, engines, right, systems and systems and systems, could you model that? So this is one way of looking at it. And if you look at this diagram, any one piece here could be owned. So if you take everyone in this room here, um, imagine all of you are running huge research labs. Well, each one of you may be just spending your whole life on little pieces of this. And you could win, like I mentioned, a Nobel Prize just for that because that's the incentive. Um, at MIT, this problem, Doug Laufenberger was the head of the department. Around 2003, was getting out of it because he was able to do around 50 of these ball and stick diagrams. See, these are, this is what's called a ball and stick diagram. If you take a biology course today, how do you study? Your teacher will get up, or a biochem, they'll draw these ball and stick diagrams, right? These ball and stick diagrams are typically in some paper. You do, a biologist does research, and then they publish a piece of work, which will have these diagrams. So the issue is how do you connect systems of those diagrams, not just pictorially together, but also mechanistically. Because these diagrams were starting to become mathematical models. Kinetic models, stochastic models, all different formats. The inputs were the species concentrations, the output was the species concentrations at some time n plus one. And the heuristics used for these could be anything, ODE, stochastic, a number of things. People are doing them in many different programs. So the issue is how do you connect them? Because that was seen as an intractable problem, Biologists maybe were able to do around 50, you know, 50 equations, 50 kinetic models. The computer science guys came in and said, don't worry, we'll solve your problem, we'll throw AI at it, okay? Which is basically, you know, I'm going to look at some input, I'm going to look at some output, and then I'm going to correlate the output to the input, right? And you can use a whole bunch of methods to do that. The problem is in biology, we don't just want correlations, we don't just want nice, pretty curves, we actually want to understand mechanisms. So. When I looked at this problem, I saw it not as a biology problem, a computer science problem, because of my uh, background in building large-scale systems, uh, building large-scale systems, I saw it more as a, uh, I, I, saw it, I, I saw it more as a, uh, I saw it more as a, uh, as a uh, 
as a distributed engineering systems problem. So I saw each one of you as actually knowledge engineers. You're, what are you doing? You're actually looking at this system called the human body, or the human physiology, the human cell, and you're actually reverse engineering components. Okay? Your experiments are finding these components. All right? And my theory was that instead of trying to, and I'll get into this, monolithically try to do this, we must take a distributed, decentralized approach. Let people do their own thing, let them build their own models, and we will create an architecture that will decentrally be the orchestra conductor that brings them together. So give me an example. Here is a pathway with five species with various interactions, just to give you sort of the guts of what we're talking about. Five species, six molecular interactions. You have inputs, which are the, the species concentrations of time step one, and typically some model and they'll find the species concentration at time step n, n plus one. And you'll get these nice pretty curves, okay? These are called rate curves. Everyone see these? Okay, so this is what these kinetic models do. And the idea is if we, if we want to go from genes, proteins, biological pathways, all the way up, because we want to understand something as complex as the immune system, we have to be able to go across multiple scale. So right now you're looking at, these are the, by scale, okay, the number of things we're finding in you know, proteins, genes, you know, the number of models that we have. Uh, this is what a large-scale pathway looks like. So if you want to model the whole thing, how do you do it? So this was a work, uh, my PhD work in Cytosol. So one way is you can say, I'm going to go right from genes and proteins, protein-protein interactions up here. And that means you're going to use Newton's equations, right? So you're going to look at the particular degrees of freedom of two proteins. You know, if you look at a, a chain, and if you want to get into the guts of it, for example, if you want to just do this A plus B going to AB, you're looking at two sets of calculations. Um, let's say you even look at a protein with about 100 residues, greater than 100 atoms. You need to calculate 3 to the 100 states of A, 3 to the 100 states of B, and so on. It's massively complex. That's just for two proteins interacting. Forget a choreography of pathways. And you have to look at all the, the reaction curves, Bottom line is this is an intractable problem right now if you want to do large-scale pathways, okay? It's called ab initio. The other approach is people said, what I will do is I will aggregate pathways. I will go to person A, hey, give me your pathway, I'll convert it to a model. Give me your pathway, I'll convert it to a model. Literally build one big model that they program. So that's the other way people are doing. They would take the code of model one, model two, and literally put together a code. So imagine all of you have individual pathways, and I want to, and you're all working on pieces of Alzheimer's, and I literally build a massive code piece. It's called a monolithic approach. What's the problem with that? Well, when you start building that kind of thing like this, and you're monolithically doing it, one grad student doing it, or one company doing it, it's unmaintainable. Anyone work for a software company? Okay. It's an important thing because, again, biologists and computer scientists haven't been in the real world. This is something they don't understand. When you're building large-scale systems, what ends up happening is change management. So one guy changes the model here. How do you handle all of this? Okay? So people are doing monolithic, and that's why you know people are going through nice diagrams like this, um, or people would do systems like this monolithically, one code base, um, or even combined models. You know, you know, people are writing ways to merge models. The bottom line is that the monolithic approach has all of these difficulties, right? You have to port everything to one system, right? You can't have multiple systems working together. So, and moreover, it's time consuming, expensive, and hard to maintain. So this is not scalable. The, the sort of the Newton mechanistic approach is intractable, this is not scalable. So what we really need to do is we need to develop a way that we can overcome intractability. We want to be able to integrate all your components. And that's why the concept was, if this blue circle represented the cell, let's say each one of you are working on components, let each one of you do your own thing, okay? Do your models, and it could in fact be distributed across the internet, and we would create a platform which would on the fly look at all those models, communicate to them, do essentially mass balance in the cloud and integrate all of them together, okay? So the, the big difference here was it was an engineering systems approach, a distributed engineering systems approach. It wasn't saying I'm just gonna apply one algorithm, right? That's gonna solve this, because it's not, because you have maintenance issues. And what this allowed us to do was helped us to decentralize the problem, let people do their own thing, and Cytosol would be sort of the orchestra conductor 
managing those computations uh, across multiple scales. So here was a, it's called the EGFR problem, Kolodenko. It was a well-defined problem. This was considered very complicated. And there was a, and people had modeled this using many, many different monolithic tools. So what we did was, as an initial uh, proof, uh, was we put, took this model, we put it into multiple little pieces, distributed them on different computers, and we had to, and this is sort of your single, you know, your first problem, where we showed that we would get the same solution in a distributed way. The cytosol is a distributed cell designer, is the monolithic, so on. So this was published in Cellular Molecular Engineering, and this, the title of this paper was A Scalable Computational Method for Dynamic Integration of Multiple Molecular Pathway Models. This was considered revolutionary at the time because our proposition was we could scale infinitely to handle many, many distributed models. So that was really Cytosol, the beginnings of it. But what we really figured out, what we really done, was we, would, we had done something, in, in, in our view, something a little more paradigm changing. Instead of the old model, we created a feedback model. We created a much more systems approach. The drug development model was an open system. We had created, created much more of an intelligent approach. Here, we can not only handle a single compound, but we can handle multiple compounds. If you look at what's going on, in the average 82-year-old today is taking 12 different drugs. Okay? No one understands the drug-drug interaction fully. Uh, when uh, there's also, that's on the toxicity side. On the benefit side, which I'll, I'll talk about, there's more and more evidence showing that when you combine lower dosages of cocktails of compounds, food, for example, right, um, you have a much more salutary effect, you lower toxicity. So this would allow us to do those kinds of problems. But here, we would mine clinical research, mine data from existing papers. When I mean mining, I don't mean mining, data mining alone. We're talking about systems mining, those molecular pathways. Okay, and then we would build large-scale mechanisms, and this would be done long before we went in vitro. And by the way, this is sort of how we build airplanes, right? No airplanes, we just throw a pilot in, we don't just do wind tunnel, a lot of it's done here. This was something the biologists thought was intractable. So what's happened over the last, uh, now 12 to 14 years, we've built what we call an entire collaboratory. We, we work with major pharma, major institutions, major, uh, we have, universities who actually outsource research to us now because we can do the work of 30 or 40 graduate students or we can make one postdoc, we can multiply their effort. So here, I'll walk through this. We have a process, of an engineering, it's almost a manufacturing process and how we can take a problem, take it down the path and create models. These models are shared with domain research communities. Um, if the models don't match, they give us back feedback and then you have this cycle, but these models are getting better and better and better. And I'll show you some examples. Just to, uh, just to detail, this is a process we go through for any problem. Um, we identify the problem. We do essentially a systematic literature review. From this, we extract out mechanisms. But the thing that we do before we jump to this step is we actually build engineering architectures. We, we don't just say, let's just start mashing this stuff together. We say, okay, based on what we see out there, can we actually understand, is this a, a submarine or is it an airplane or what is it? Okay, we build the architecture of that, knowing that we're not gonna get it right, but we have to at least step back and do that architectural analysis. Then we do component development, um, we integrate those components, and then we actually use these for drug development, uh, nutraceutical development, et cetera. Work with a lot of different companies. By the way, this is no longer G-Wiz. We're actually doing this, I'll give you some examples. Um, our customers have started using us in ways we never even thought they want to use us. Um, they use us from combination therapies to nutraceutical formulation. If you go to Whole Foods, you know there's all these supplements. God knows if they even work or not. Uh, some of them actually do, but you as a consumer have no idea of knowing what works or doesn't. The next thing I want to talk about is how we're using this to build those architectures. So as I mentioned, we can take the literature, we extract out mechanisms, we build architectures, we actually do modeling, and then we actually publish. Let me walk you through um, something quite interesting. Many years ago, I was giving a talk at one of the uh, retreats of the top 25 neuroscientists in the world. And one of the researchers there got very interested in our work uh, at USC and they wanted to collaborate. And the problem that they're looking at is neurovascular diseases. In neurovascular diseases, if you think about your brain as represented by the astrocytes here and the neurons, your brain is actually surrounded by what's called the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is a series of basically an interconnected network of arteries. 
Um, those arteries would stretch from San Francisco to Los Angeles if you uh, spread them out. That's how much arteries the blood-brain barrier is. Here, if you look at the artery, this is called the endothelial. This is where the blood flows in. And the parasites are a valve that control flow of blood here, as well as removal of toxins, okay? The recent research across many, many papers is showing that the destruction to the parasites is what causes nearly every neurological disease, okay? Now, from a systems perspective, what we did was we went through thousands of papers, and just for the endothelial alone, we extracted out and built these interconnections, okay? Behind the surprise, a couple thousand papers, curated, etc. That's just the parasites. Um, then we did it for the, um, I'm sorry, this is for the endothelial, this is for the parasites, that pink system, and that's for the astrocytes. But one of the cool things, now anyone can, you can say can do that, okay? The cool thing that we did, these were neuroscientists who had never heard the word systems architecture. Um, so what I proposed was I said, look, here's the anatomy, why don't we look at all the diseases and propose a three-tier architecture. Anyone know what a three-tier architecture is? Yes, you build software? Okay, you do, okay. If you're building software, you're supposed to build it in a three-tier form, right, or N-tier. You have your data layer, your communications layer, and then your application layer. In, you, in engineering, we would say your foundation layer in the building, your piping and your electrical systems, and then the interior design, okay? The operating system, right, and then the apps on top. So we proposed this very different way of looking at this. We said, Here's the endothelial, here's a pair, these are anatomical structures. All of these little boxes here are the actual submodules of molecular pathways. And some of these are domain specific. People may hold a conference just on any one of these. And then here's the parasites, here's the astrocytes, and then here's a communication layer. So you can see between the endothelial and the parasites, there are six communication boxes within that communication layer, and two within here. Everyone tracking? And this is a communication layer. Now, if you layer down the diseases, you find out some very interesting connections. And by the way, none of this we're making up. We're simply looking at the, at that point in 2017, what's out there, and we're simply bringing it into an, into an engineering framework. And what you find is, if you look at over here, Alzheimer's, and if you look at over here, ALS, they are, they are problems in the same PDGF beta pathway. So it's a very different way of looking at disease. Disease here is, is not no longer seen as a silo disease problem. It's seen as a dysfunction, as, at least in this case in the communication layer. Okay. When we submitted this to Nature Neuroscience, by the way, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, never published in there, right? I was a co-PI on this. When we submitted, half of the reviewers thought this was brilliant, and the other half thought, who the hell, who the hell are you? This word engineering systems architecture is a bogus term. We've never heard of it. We've never even heard of systems architecture. This kind of so we had to write back a 20-page response, educate them, and it was, it was uh, finally published, okay? So I'm giving you that example because we had to actually uh, fight back and actually educate a whole different audience. And this paper's had quite a number of citations, but it's given a very different way of looking at neurovascular diseases. I'll give you another example. This example, if we go beyond just the architecture, we actually look at taking the architecture, doing the computation, and then validating if our computation actually matches wet lab reality. Because people were, could easily say, well, these diagrams are pretty interesting, but can your stuff actually match reality? Um, and this was, again, done with multiple institutions, open architecture, a lot of collaboration. Um, one of the students between MIT and Harvard, Andrew Koo, did the wet lab work, um, and I'll walk you through this. So here's a, you exercise, you go for a jog, you run, Blood flows through your arteries. In the presence of arginine, your body uh, releases nitric oxide, it vasodilates. It's a good thing to occur. Um, Andrew had meticulously set up this lab experiment where he could send blood flow or flow, shear stress, and he could measure NO release. If you look at the surface of the artery, I mean, the surface of the endothelial, you see over here, these are like um, your bathroom tiles. If you look at the surface of that, you'll see this little structure. It looks like a Christmas tree. Everyone see that? When this moves, it's, a, it's actually a mechanotransducer. So when it motion, mechanical motion, uh, makes it release chemical action. So the glycocalyx, uh, it was a controversial structure. Many people didn't even believe it existed for a while. But it, it, it's been shown, it's been proven to exist. Um, so Andrew was able to do input, output, right? Send different shear flow, measure different NO release. 
That's typically what the wet lab biologists do. But if you want to go and actually look at the literature, you'll find all these ball and stick diagrams. Okay? Uh, everyone has their piece of the action. Some people believe calcium influx is a key to NO release, or enos phosphorylation, or you know NO production. Okay? What we did was we decentralized, saw them as engineering components, put it into an architecture, because there's no way if you match all these together to solve this. And for that matter, you can't maintain it. And what I'm going to show you is some, something quite impressive, because this is the actual prediction of cytosol of NO release, or mRNA, which is the uh, messenger RNA producing uh, NO over time. Behind this curve, though, is not some curve fit, it's not some neural network waste, it's actually the mechanistic understanding. Mm. And what you see right here is the actual wet lab experiments. It's not a curve fit. And same here, we're looking at the actual enox protein. Until this was done, you had the biologists who were naysayers who were saying you can't do something this complicated. And this was published in Cell Biophysical Journal. Again, no, um, it's a pretty high impact journal. So this was important because we went from architectural understanding to pretty pictures to actually showing that we could solve a very complex problem. Mm. Okay, I'll, I'll leave you with two ones as we end this is, um, you know, people may say, well, this is just academia. You know, you have your friends in academia, this is not real. So can you show me something you've done in the real world? Um, Al Nylum is a 12, I think about a $15 million company now, started by Philip Sharp, who discovered SIRNAIs, the, uh, he won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in Cambridge. Uh, and they were working on a rare disease called hereditary angioedema, where people essentially get edema. And uh, what we did, in, in literally about 45 days, we were able to find the high-level architecture and then we modeled it. They actually had found, to, to, to give you the, 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 re, the industrial reality, that they had actually found a target which downregulated this protein, but, and they were in late preclinical. They had mouse data, but they were very shy to move forward to the FDA lounge. This is what happens in biology. People get all this data, they're sort of shooting, they're always not that confident in what they have is right, because they don't understand mechanisms fully. Okay? So what we were able to do is behind, we actually did the mechanistic modeling. So behind that blue line are all those mechanisms. This is their target. This is the protein that it was affecting. After we did this, then they gave us their mouse data, okay? This is after, and you can see it matches quite well. But the proof in the pudding is they put out a big press release saying Al Nylum's in vivo study, which means their mouse study, confirms cytosols in silico prediction. Mechanistic model confirms Alnylam's drug target, accelerating decision clinical trial. That's a gold standard. That means we went from theory to a platform to actually helping a company make a decision. Okay? Let me give you another example. This paper came out in Nature Biotechnology several years ago saying if you're going to solve cancer, you can't just use a single drug. You have to use cocktails. Why? When you build drugs today, the two metrics that are used is called efficacy and toxicity. Uh, so you want to create something that's efficacious, but you don't want to kill the person. So if you ever use Advil, anyone use Advil here or ibuprofen? It typically says what, use two, 400 milligrams. Well, it took them years to find that dosage. That's the efficacious dosage for someone, let's say, 150, 160 pounds, and um, that it doesn't cause toxicity. So pharma companies, the FDA's whole goal is to make sure you don't kill people, there are, or drugs are not allowed to kill people, and helping people find the dosage. What this article was saying was, when someone has cancer, they hit them with a, a chemotherapy agent at X dosage, and they have side effects. Imagine you could reduce that dosage, and you can hit people with combinations. So you have synergistic action, an ensemble effect, but, and, but you keep the toxicity low. And what was interesting was, we don't know any of these guys. These guys are leaders in the field. This was when we had started our company two years in. And my thesis was the only thing cited there as having the capability to do combination therapy mechanistically. So we didn't know about this. Uh, we went and raised about a million bucks literally in two weeks when that paper came out. And we said, why don't we take on uh, a cancer end to end? And, and we set a goal in one year, could we actually di discover combination therapy for pancreatic cancer? And could we actually find and, and get it allowed by the FDA? Before I go there, let me just give you a toy example of what I mean. You know, in India, you'll find people mixing these herbs together. You ask them, how do you mix it? They'll sort of wave their hand, um, just very similar to if you have to go to Whole Foods and you ask someone how did you come up with that formulation, there's a lot of hand waving, okay? So what we're able to do here as, a, as an example, curcumin, everyone heard of this? Okay, anyone heard of this? Yeah. 
Grammar and how do you even hurry me up? Okay. So it turns out, about 15, 20 years ago, it turns out Indians get one-third less liver cancer than people in Asia. Okay? Epidemiological. I mean, Asia, I mean, China and India, Indians get one-third because curcumin has a very salutary effect. Um, when that came out, nearly 6,000 papers came out um, mapping out the mechanisms of curcumin. So what we did was we looked at all those papers, we looked at all the places curcumin interacts, and we mapped them out, and we mathematically modeled it. If you take resveratrol, which is the stuff in red wine, red grapes, similarly we did that. And then what we were able to do is look at, so by the way, these are inflammatory pathways. We're looking at how these compounds affect inflammation. We're then able to run in silico experiments. The right column here, if you keep your eye on that, that column is a cytokine which reflects um, inflammation. So as the numbers go down, it's better. So in the first control on the computer, I'm not giving any curcumin, any resveratrol, you see high inflammation. Everyone see that? 0.15. I just give curcumin, it goes down to 0.05. Resveratrol alone, same thing. But watch what happens when I combine, okay? You get a non-linear effect. And this is what you want, because it's a, and by the way, uh, from a discovery standpoint, if you find non-linear, non-obvious effects, you can actually patent them, okay? You can't just patent like, you know, product A, I bred in PubMed, product B, mix them together, but if you find non-linear combinations, these are considered discoveries. So getting back to cancer, what we did was we modeled all the mechanisms of apoptosis. Anyone heard that term? Mm -hmm. Cell death. So by the way, in cancer, the strategy is the following. In cancer, it's a two-part, two-pronged strategy. Cells that are supposed to die don't die, so you want them to die, that's called apoptosis. And then cells start proliferating, that's called cell proliferation. So in cancer, what they're typically trying to do is they're trying to do an uppercut and a lowercut, which means uh, you're trying to increase apoptosis and you're trying to downregulate cell proliferation. So here, we modeled all those pathways, same thing in cell proliferation, and then what we did was we literally went through the 252 cancer drugs that are out there, generics, and we started doing two combination mixtures. We could have done more. Our attorney said just do two. So we went through about 10 million combinations. We found 78 were viable, five we optimized, and one we found actually did better on the computer, better than what, what, um, uh, what was the gold standard called, gemcitabine. We applied for an IND to fill out around 10 to 20,000 pieces of paperwork. Lo and behold, three months into it, we get a call from the FDA, and they say, what you guys have done is quite extraordinary. They go, we typically do not do outbound calls, but what you're doing is what we believe needs to be done in the 23rd century. They allowed our FDA, and then at that point, we didn't know what to do. Um, we went to MD Anderson, which is one of the biggest cancer centers, and we did a joint venture with them. And now, we expanded that model, and the goal is, and we in fact spun out a company with them. And we've done this now in multiple disease areas. The point I'm sharing again with you, we're going from theory development all the way to something entrepreneurial. So let's talk about the immune system with that background. So in summary, I, I hope you appreciate that the approach we've taken is a decentralized approach. The approach we've taken is using computing in a way that we're decentralizing those computations. We're also aggregating known knowledge at a point in time, recognizing that there's uncertainty. We're not saying any of this is perfect, but engineers, in some ways, we're different than scientists, right? Engineers, we build things, and we try to get it to version 1.0, right? And we try to get it to version 2.0. We're not going for perfection. So let's look at the immune system. So the way I want to tee this up is, That's it. yeah, uh, what is the, what is, if you just step back, and I ask you the health of a system. If you study broadly systems, one of the most important things in any system, a building, a bridge, a skyscraper, your body is a term called resilience. Okay? So I want you to open up to the, a broader global concept of what health of anything means. It's resilience. And resilience begins with stress. There's a notion of stress. So if you build a bridge, it's not how much cement you put on that bridge. It doesn't make that bridge strong, right? Or how fast an airplane can fly. It can, how can it handle stress and how can it bounce back? Now Hans Sele was known as the father of stress. He accidentally discovered it when he noticed when he was chasing rats around a lab and he was trying to inject them with something. All the other rats in watching all this got really stressed out and they had stress markers. The one sitting in the cage watching the rat, the other rat being injected and chased around. Um, but stress really comes from an engineering term, right? You have shear stress, you have normal stress, right? So that's where it actually comes from. 
And you, know, you can calculate stress force per unit area. And then we also have the concept of strain and elongation. We have the concept of fracture. We know certain things. You can, at a certain point, you can stress something and it bounces back, right? At, after a certain point, it breaks. So the issue is, this notion here starts giving us an idea of how much you can push stuff. But more importantly, the question comes, can you actually change the dynamics of that curve? Which means, can you do what's called stress inoculation? The military does this. They don't just want to throw a soldier out there so he freaks out in battle. They inoculate people, right? So the concept of stress inoculation. And by the way, here are many, many different ways you can describe resilience. But one of the simplest ways, the ability to adapt, the ability to bounce back, right? So um, many skyscrapers, for example, a certain amount of wind and shear that they can take so they don't just snap. But resilience you know, has these terms to it. Um, and the key features of a resilient system, you can look at them up here, spare capacity, flexibility, you know, a, a limited or safe failure, it's constant learning, but it's the ability to bounce back, okay? Um, shock absorbers, are, you know, we have shock absorbers, that's how they make our car resilient. Uh, the, the lateral meniscus and the medial meniscus, you know, our knee joint is what gives us resilience. Um, we, and resilience varies, some of us can handle a lot of stress, Others can't, you know, it, these emotions vary. One of the important things is the HPA axis in our system, which is, you know, starts with the hypothalamus, um, going down the adrenal, I'm sorry, the pituitary, the adrenals. This axis is what controls stress, the fight or fight response in our body. And one of the things people have discovered over the years is your body has a homeostasis where it likes to be at, and each one of our bodies is different. Allostasis is where your body moves to when it's under chronic stress. Some people have forgotten what homeostasis even means. Okay? <laughs> That's what's happening. If you look at those 34% of these, by the way, 54% of young kids in America have some type of autoimmune disorder. All right? It's a chronic uh, condition of inflammation. So if you're living in an inflammatory state all the time, which is allostasis, you think this is homeostasis. So, Nicholas Lazarev was one of the first guys who discovered, uh, he found stress chemicals, and he found certain other chemicals which could help you adapt to stress, called adaptogens. So for example, genocide, stuff that comes from ginseng, stuff that comes from ashwagandha. He found that even though you're stressed, these molecules allow you to take on that stress, but not go to allostasis. And um, by the way, there's, this is starting to become a field in neurobiology. It's called the neurobiology resilience. You can put someone under, under stress, and can you increase their performance? Um, and uh, so this is a very interesting paper here, which really shows that in order to build resilience, it's a function of genetics, a neuropeptide Y, your body's ability to make that epigenetics, but also what they're calling stress inoculation. Okay, That you can actually stress your body and stress it doing quote-unquote stress inoculation exercises, and based on this triangle, you can build a certain amount of resilience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's uh, some of it's genetics, some of it's epigenetics, and some of it is something you actively do to engage yourself in this stress-resilient process. And, and people have found adaptogens stimulate this, which are chemicals. People have found certain exercises stimulate this. Some of people have found you know, deep relaxation supports this. Um, but one of the things they found is adaptogens actually upregulate this molecule called neuropeptide Y. And this interaction, and it goes through a series of interactions, is extremely, so there's a, a molecular basis to resilience. Um, this curve here, this is a normal person who's in a stress condition, but under stress inoculation, what they're finding is you can perturb this curve, you can get people can be less stressed under the same input stress, People can get better performance. The point is that we can actively change the body by stressing it. Okay? Sort of like how they used to make the Japanese knives. They stress it and then they cool it. Okay? So in yoga, for example, anyone do yoga here? Okay, two people, three people. Um, in, in yoga, there, when you do these postures, you're typically doing active postures and then you do shavasana, which is resting postures. So there's a theory that when you go back and forth, you're actually stress inoculating your body, okay? So this, getting back to this, this system shows, if you look at this, for anyone in this room, based on your genetics, based on your ability to handle certain types of exercise and your epigenetics, what you eat, you know, 
the food, the, the environment, you can have a certain amount of stress resilience. So the argument here, the theory here is that ultimately health is building that resilience capability. And what you realize out of that, you have to move to a personalized and precision medicine. What is good for you may not be good for me, and what's, et cetera, okay? Each one of us is unique. One size doesn't fit all, and it's the right medicine for the right person at the right time, okay? We've been doing this for thousands of years, by the way. Um, getting to immunity, um, have you ever heard of the technique called variolation? In this technique, in China, for example, in order to inoculate someone, they would take a pus of the smallpox or something to shoot it, the whole thing, up, up through someone's nose. It's quite disgusting. But that's what, um, that's, this was a way of inoculating people, exposing them, but to the full germ. Um, in, uh, in Africa, for example, people would actually cut the skin and inject uh, you know, the actual uh, pathogen into it. Uh, a slave who came to the United States was the one who taught this uh, to colonists, and that was used by actually Washington to inoculate the troops because he knew the British may use smallpox. 40,000 soldiers were inoculated using this variolation technique before vaccination. And it's a methodology that was used to actually stress inoculate the body. And Edward Jenner then started doing this with cowpox, smallpox. So where does the immune system model come from? How many biologists here, anyone? Okay, so you're gonna learn quick biology and then I'm gonna show you some of the problems here. The entire model uh, of the immune system is based on really two boxes, which goes back to 1915 and 1959, and in question and answer we can talk more. One is called the innate system, the non-specific, the first line of defense. All of us have the innate system, which is in our skin, our mucous membranes. When you someone sneezes on you, it's not going into your bloodstream, it's hitting your eyes, your nose, your skin, okay? It's called the first line of defense. And when pathogens come that way, your body actually unleashes like it's got, a, the, the theory of this old model was your body actually unleashes hell on everything. It's like all the soldiers come up and just start shooting everyone. That's why it's called a non-specific system. After that first level of hit, your body then says, oh, I, I'm, I got hit with this virus. I'm gonna create, a, which is called an antigen or pathogen. I'm gonna create a specific antibody for that. So this is like the army and this is like the Navy SEALs, okay? And this has been, the thesis of the immune system up until now, even now. And just to go a little bit deeper, the immune system again has those two arms, the innate and the adaptive. So the physical side is your skin, it's your cough reflex, your tears, your mucosal layer, your stomach acids. And these are the kinds of cells that are in those mucus areas that are used. The adaptive immune system has the T cells, helper cells, B cells. These are the guys that do much more targeted attack, okay? Um, and again, a little more biology here. The innate system, if you look at the features of it, the speed of onset is immediate. The regulation is just on or off. Its potency is typically lower. So the kinetics is very quick. You're talking about 72 hours. Think about someone sneezes on you or someone shakes your hand, whatever. It's in that 72 hour window, you get the chills, right, the fever, etc. cetera. Um, its duration is days. There's no memory. By the way, this is false, okay? We'll talk, the activity is always present and it's unspecific. The adapted immune system is thought to be T cells and B cells. It, it typically waits, um, it, it, it regulates itself, uh, the potency is higher, it slows, it takes a long time to build this. Um, the duration is long and it has memory, it's normally silent, it's very specific. One way to look at this, again, this is the current theory of the immune system. You have a pathogen comes, it hits your innate immune system, and then it triggers your adaptive immune system. And in this reductionist model, the current way pharma, everyone develops their approach is you take this very complex system and what are you measuring? Antibodies, okay? That's what's used to measure the success of the immune system. So when you get a vaccine, they measure antibody levels. And if you have X or Y antibodies, great, you're all set, you're, you're in good shape. This is the current theory, okay? Now, my work, my PhD work, I worked on a system called the IFN system, the interferon system. It turns out this theory is absolutely, at best, it's outdated, um, and at worst, it's, 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 it's incomplete. But the IFN system, what it turns out, at the time I did it, this was coming out, but now it's pretty clear this is a missing link 
between the innate and the adaptive. What is the IFN system? It's interferon system. Interfere means interfere. It interferes with viruses. So, um, for example, the IFN response establishes transcription memory. Turns out, the early tests that were done showed that when you virus hits, for example, they expose a rabbit to a virus, and they notice around that virus, the rabbit was actually inoculated against other viruses. Okay, it was called viral interference, which means, uh, and it took, which means that the rabbit didn't need to be exposed to all the other viruses. The body has the ability uh, that the exposure to one virus actually enables the body to get ready for other viruses. It's quite an interesting phenomenon. And the way this works is we have type one interferons, interferon alpha and beta. They they're part of the innate immune system, and then we have interferon gamma, which actually supports the adaptive immune system, and we actually have interferon lambda. The point is there's these other chemical constituents in between the innate and the adaptive. Five minutes? Okay. Um, and just to walk you through, so very, very quickly, without all the details, this was done by some great group in, in uh, Japan, Tanaguchi, and what it showed was, if you, I'll, I'll sort of walk you through this quickly in the next minute. This is the outer cell wall, this is the nuclear wall. And just follow this, this narrative here. When a virus hits your cell, it's, it's, it's broken through your innate immune system, your body actually has within it chemicals called interferon regulatory factors. When this occurs, your body actually uses these RF3s to create interferon beta. Step one, that's a step one process. This interferon beta may go to the same cell or consider this to be a next cell, and it signals that cell, hey, I just got infected, get ready. And when that happens, this cell then through a series of processes creates IRF7. So it just goes through the nuclear membrane. IRF7 gets ready for, for the next virus to hit. So cell A got infected, cell A signaled the neighboring cells, and when the neighboring cells get hit with the virus, guess what happens? A nuclear reaction occurs and interferon beta and alpha are unleashed to defend that cell against another kind of virus, okay? So, so what we did was for my PhD work, we looked at all of those four phases, we integrated them, we modeled them, and what we were able to show was this is interferon um, beta and this is interferon alpha, and these and, and the time scale of these match actually what goes on in the first uh, uh, cycle of when, when you get uh, that interferon process. So the point is we were able to mechanistically show that their interferon system is involved in this uh, you know, this viral interference. Most important, what I want you to leave you away with this diagram, when you look at this, isn't this interesting? That our body has chemical constituents that is waiting for pathogens, okay? It's waiting for that stress so it can get ready to handle other pathogens, okay? So what I want to leave you with this is the new field that's developing is called systems immunology. And what that field is saying, the immune system is involved in so many different subsystems. In fact, this is a, a, a line from the end, ending of that article. It says, a case in point is that the main immunological metrics widely, widely in medicine are white blood cell counts and the complete blood cell counts. The former was developed in 1915 and the latter was developed in 1959. It's time for an upgrade. So here's the upgrade, okay? This is what, this, is, this itself is an upgrade. This itself is um, an important upgrade. But what's turning out is, that question will come back in the Q&A, is if you have a vaccine and it's going right to the adaptive you're, and exposure, which you're getting through the innate, what are the risks? What are the benefits? Which means, is this better or is this better? By the way, there is no risk matrix, by the way, in this field. Um, if you put it all together based on the current science, and there could be other boxes, what you actually find is a much more uh, comprehensive theory of the immune system or an architecture is the following. You have your microbiome, your gut, all those amazing bacteria, which have all different diversity. They communicate actually with the innate immune system. The innate immune system communicates with the IFN, which communicates with the adaptive. And by the way, this feeds back these all communicate with these systems and they all interconnect with the neural system. It's called the gut-brain axis. Um, this, in my view, is a modern theory of the immune system. And it's, a, it's not a reductionist model, so you have to start asking some very important questions. One of the questions is, what is the role of vaccination in the context of personalized medicine? Does one size fit all? By the way, the average kid from zero to 18 
has 30 potential vaccines that can be given. So 30, okay? The next question is, how well are we really addressing the health of the public with a one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't fully acknowledge complex systems? What is the proper role of information theory and technology in personalized healthcare? Okay, here's another one. Where should the locus of control for healthcare be? Decentralized or centralized? This is important. Should the government be mandating these protocols given how complex these systems are? Or should it come in a decentralized way between the doctor-patient relationship, which we're actually destroying, by the way. Everything's being mandated top-down. The other set of research questions are, can health be fully predictive when we are dealing with biological systems that are infinitely complex, not like physics? Or should we not be aiming for resilience in health, coming what, come what stressors may? How might politics and profit motive be playing into our research with these questions? And finally, when we go from the paradigm of win-lose dynamics in research to a paradigm like cytosol, inclusive, iterative, you know, what changes? And then the other question, do vaccines short-circuit by, bypass the IFAN system? So, thank you. I want to, we can open up questions, but I want to pose these research questions. I don't have the answers. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if we as engineers, this is a huge opportunity where we're living in right now to take an engineering systems approach to solve these problems. Thank you. Thank you.